1: Today on the show, I would like to welcome Dr. Marisol Papajan, who is internationally recognized and an award-winning educator, TEDx speaker, executive coach, corporate trainer, and author of the book, Leadership is a Responsibility. She is also the founder of the Kaplan Institute, a leadership coaching and corporate training company specializing in workplace culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and soft skills development. She holds a doctoral degree in higher education leadership and a master's of management with a specialization in leadership. We have so much to chat about here today, Dr. Capajon. So let's
2: jump right into this. How are you? I'm doing great. I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. Awesome. Okay, so before
1: we delve into your professional journey, let's talk about your personal journey. And in one word, can you describe your life thus far?
2: The one word I will use is roller coaster.
1: (laughs) Roller coaster. Tell me more.
2: Tell us more. It's just so many ups and downs and curves. It's just, I think my life has been so unpredictable. I think if it's not roller coaster, it's going to be unpredictable. (laughs) From growing up without my parents in the DR, being raised by my grandmother, being an immigrant, being homeless, then being the first person in my family to have a doctoral degree and a graduate degree, being the only Afro-Latina in the department that I used to teach, and then, you know, noticing all the biases and discrimination and everything that happened to me, but at the same time, having the love of all my students And having the support from my husband. So you have these ups and then you have this down and you just call it ups and down. And at the end of the day, you have to appreciate life. But I think the one word for me will be roller coaster.
1: Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for one, that word, but also describing why, why that word. So let's talk about your past, where you grew up and some of the events and experiences that support where you are today in your journey.
2: I grew up in the Dominican Republic with my grandmother. My grandmother was a single mother of five, and I became her sixth when I arrived. So when I came into my grandmother's house, she was very poor. She used to make candles and shine shoes for people and working, cleaning houses. And then my father showed up with me in his arms. Like, here it is. <laughs>
1: wow,
2: here's your other child. <laughs> here's your other child, and she just took care of me. I grew up with her, and when she was little, she had to give up on school because she had to help her mother with her job and my grandmother was very smart, but she always regretted the fact that she couldn't finish school so one of the non negotiable non negotiable values? in my home, was that I had to finish school no matter what. So growing up, she will sign me up for little tutoring classes and math classes, like additional extracurricular events that weren't fun, in quotes, like it wasn't like going to dance class or painting class or summer camp it was like oh you're going to learn about science and you're going to learn about math and you're going to be a lawyer or you're going to be a doctor anything that had to be related to school so that was a very influential part of my childhood that impacted my ability to go to school even when I was homeless even when I was struggling even when I was I had a three-year-old with me I decided to go and get my doctoral degree because school was a huge it, it was something that I was just expected to do to go to school and excel in school.
1: Right. And was that something as you're talking about this I know this was part of that value somewhat of the conditioning was it
2: something you enjoyed? I enjoyed it so much. So what happened was I always tell this story my when I was in I went to school, I was in first grade when I was four. And okay, was early. Third grade, when, yeah, very early. I graduated from school very early. So when you're growing up in a third world country, you don't have a lot of services like for nannies, like that's a luxury that you will have a nanny at home. Oh, and yeah. My grandmother was like, what am I going to do with this kid? And I have to go to work. So she found a way to enroll me in school twice. I was there in first grade, second grade, third grade in many of those school years. And I was going to school in two times. So in the DR, you either go to school from seven to one or like two to six. It's either one or the other. She enrolled me twice. So (laughs) I was basically getting on the second time. I was getting that repeat of my my first eight hours of the day was being repeated on the other eight or six hours yeah I'm being a mess here, but you know what I'm saying, right? I do I do and then what used to happen is I used to love school so much, and this the teachers knew that I was there in school for the whole day, and they used to like be very fun on me of me they used to they knew that I didn't grow up with a mom, so they used to like feel very like, oh, look at this girl, she's like three years younger than everybody else, and here she is learning and enjoying it. So I did enjoy school so much. I I enjoyed it. My associates was in teaching math out of all of the subjects I wanted to teach math. Then I tutored students in school. I helped them pass their entrance exam. I helped them with their personal statement to sign up for different schools and things like that. So I always loved school. School for me was like my, I will say a little bit of my escape too, because I didn't have a mom at home or a dad at home. So for me school was like this environment where I could thrive and people look at my abilities and I had my mentors and my students my my professors were like my support system so I will say I actually really enjoyed it so I'm glad that my grandmother showed school as my basically my support system for me to grow up and my babysitters in a way yeah. <laughs> so I I enjoyed it a lot
1: Well, I love hearing that and that something similar in my life, I felt like school was always my safety, my place of safety, security, and it's something that was familiar to me. And so and that I excelled at. So it sounds like some of those things also touch home with you as well. It was kind of something where you excelled, and it was valued, and you learned to value it. And then you went on with your journey. So let's talk about how your journey evolved to a TEDx, which was entitled, Leadership is a Responsibility, Privilege is Access, and what this experience was like for you.
2: So I'm going to try not to get emotional right now, <laughs> <laughs> but that TEDx, you know, when I signed off for TEDx, my hope for that TEDx was to be more about a motivations because I'm, I'm a huge advocate for personal development and mindset. But at that time, I was going through so many challenges in my career. And that's how I ended up with writing a book called Leadership is a Responsibility and doing a TEDx talk called Leadership is a Responsibility. And basically, I ended up doing that TEDx talk because before that experience in higher education that I'm about to talk about... I looked at school as my safety net and my professors, I saw them as my mentor until my biggest mentor, which I thought, who I thought was my mentor, became my me- nemesis in higher oh. education. So I trusted this professor, I had all these professors growing up. I have blowing letters of recommendations and I'm thinking about like, oh, this lady is my mentor. It's like this person who knows my story. And it's going to help me move up in education. And the minute I decided to ask to get a seat on the table, she didn't remind me where I belong. Oh. So that was heartbreaking. Yes. Because he, here I am being a minority Black woman teaching at a PWI. And I'm thinking that I will have the same chance as everybody else to achieve greater things and sit at the table and everything. And she says to me, your story doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. And it it got, it got pretty ugly. And then I said to myself, it doesn't, at the end of the day, you can try as much as you can. And I never believe if having a victim mentality. I mean, if I had a victim mentality, I wouldn't have tried to even get a master's degree or a doctoral degree. I would have said, you know what? Because of the color of my skin, I deserve all of these things. I, I always thought if I worked very hard and I do what I'm asked to do and I excel in my performance, I should have been given the chance as everybody else. But then to be in a situation where none of my performance matter. But my color matter and other things that are part of my identities matter, Made me realize the importance of leaders in our society. Because if the person who's leading an organization will look at your identities first and then at your performance, they can stop your career trajectory. They can really, really damage. For me, it was like the love of education and like my trajectory in education, And that's how I come up with the thought, the TED talk of leadership is a responsibility because having a person in a leadership position who's very, I would say the word is to the experiences of Black Hispanic women in academia can really do a lot of damages to the minority population, the minority women, the mothers that are working in the workplace because they cannot see their privilege and they cannot acknowledge how hard you had to work to get to where you were so she couldn't see that she couldn't see how how hard i worked to get there at the end of the day it's just i didn't look like the people that are in leadership positions i didn't look like them so because i didn't look like them she couldn't see me in that position she couldn't advocate for me. so that's how i came up with my book and my tedx talk
1: I'm so glad you did, because it is such an important issue to speak on, because leadership is a responsibility. You are a mentor, you are a model, you are so many things. It is a responsibility. And I love the other part of the, the title, privilege is access. And a lot of times we don't have access, where access is blocked. Mm-hmm. Or there's roadblocks to that access. So I know other people, we all have roadblocks, but there's something very distinct about if you don't look like us, you're not invited to the table.
2: Yeah, and if you're not invited to the table, how can I prove myself? I have no chance in in you know being a person who loves like Brian Tracy, Tony Robbins and all these people that those personal development. Here I am thinking like, just give me the chance to be at the table. Yeah. And like, what do I need to be at the table? And people will tell you, well, you need a doctoral degree and you need this and you need that. So then you, then you go and get those things and then still you're not enough. And that's where I say privilege is access because you have a lot of people there saying, well, I want to be a VP of an organization. I want to be a CEO. And I'm like, but if you don't even get in front of those people that can make that happen for you. Like you can just like do a lot of work. And I I don't want this podcast to be like depressed or anything like that. If you're doing your work, go do your work and everything like that. But there is the responsibility of leadership that you should know that you have people underrepresented minorities or women working for you that are doing their best to like have a level playing field with everybody else and then they still may need a little push. Let me put her in front of the person who can make this happen. Because she might not be into the social events where that conversations happen. I just saw an article from, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal that said, women are not being invited to be at the table because they don't know how to play golf. (laughs) Uh. And I just laughed. I was right. saying, are you serious? Like, this, this is unbelievable that in 2023 somebody will publish an article like this. Because then it goes back to privileges access. If you as a woman, we are not socialized since we're little to play golf. How are we even going to be part of the conversation that opens access to all other things? And then instead of asking leaders to stop pre-as a prerequisite, asking women to play golf, they're actually. Asking women that they should play golf to be considered to positions. So I'm like, what? Oh my goodness! And they and and they were serious in that article. They were serious. I was like, you <laughs> gotta be kidding me! Like <laughs> we have to learn how to play golf so that we can have access to opportunity. Oh my! Instead of like, let's let's remove golf from the conversation. Yeah, that's not even a factor. Come on. <laughs> How is that even a factor when you know that in order for you to play golf, you need to have social connection. You need to know the sport. You have to spend a lot of money. It's an expensive sport. It, it is very much so. So Absolutely. if you come from poverty, like good luck to you if you don't know how to, to play golf.
1: Oh, my goodness. What a, uh, how funny, how, uh, not funny in a haha ha way. How oddly funny.
2: I love that. <laughs> not funny in the ha-ha way.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, let's jump into the topic of your newly published book. Okay. Leadership is a responsibility. And I also love the subtitle here, how to become an inclusive leader in the modern workplace by understanding the lived experience of black women and Afro Latinas at work. I love the whole idea of lived experience. So we're talking about the phenomenology. It's something that I really love. That was my methodology for my research and I love qualitative research. I love I like quantitative, but qualitative and that lived experience, that journey. So tell us more about this book
2: when I did my dissertation, I did in a qualitative research, and mm-hmm. it was a narrative inquiry. I went and interviewed women about their trajectory to leadership positions, and I absolutely loved it. Because qualitative research gives you so much insight into the nuances, the cumulative effect of discrimination, or the cumulative effect of support system. Like, what is it that really helps women advance in the workplace? And in the title of my book, I really felt the need to put Black women and Afro Latinas in the forefront because we don't speak that much about the lived experiences of Black women and Afro-Latinas. Like the book has a chapter about women in leadership and the general experience of women in the workplace, but we don't talk that much about the intersectionalities of identities. Like, okay, you're a white woman, but if you're a white woman and you're a mother, you go through a different experience than if you're a white woman without children. Mm -hmm. Or if you're a Black woman and you have children, and you have an accent because you're an Afro Latina. You go through different a different lived experience than if you're a just, if you're a Black woman. So I needed to write about that because I'm an Afro Latina. I'm from the Dominican Republic. I'm a Black Hispanic woman, and I have a thick accent, very thick, a thick accent. And sometimes I will experience certain things where people will make an assumption about my competence because of my accent. Mm-hmm. So she really knows what she's talking about, even, even though I have a doctoral degree, because I have an accent. Or maybe I picked the wrong, the wrong word when I'm speaking because I'm thinking in Spanish, but I'm talking in English, right? So the lived experiences was so important to me because the first part of the book is about my own experience in academia, right? And when I was going through... Discrimination and harassment in academia. And I will ask my white colleague, Did you go through this? Is this something that you went through? Like, I want to learn from you. They will look at me and say, Well, I didn't go through that. And then you feel so alone because you feel like, What is going on that this is only happening to me and it's not happening to them? Is there something wrong with me? Is, is there something that I'm doing? Like, you go through a lot of questioning. And it wasn't until I interviewed all other Black women in the workplace that they told me their stories and they were like, I went through the same thing you're going through, girl. This is the exact thing they told me. They told me to get a degree and then when I got the degree, they pushed me out the door. Like I just found so many, so much commonalities that I said to myself, in order for you to be an inclusive leader, you need to know the lived experiences of different women in the workplace. You cannot be an exclusive leader just because you claim to be an exclusive leader, because you claim that you make sure that people feel, feel a sense of belonging. So how can you make me feel a sense of belonging in the workplace if you don't even know what I go through? And that's why I wrote my book. I wanted people to read about the lived experiences of a woman in the workplace so that you can understand what we go through so that you know how to adjust your performance appraisal, the way that you lead, the way that you build teams in a in a in a way that makes us feel like we belong, and that makes us feel like we're working in a culture that is inclusive.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And as a human services provider, and building big collaborations throughout my journey and my profession, and working my way up the ladder as well, you know, one thing I found, and I'm sure this you found this as well is you can't change things if you don't invite people in that community to the table because they're not going to be invested if you're just saying hey i'm this person and i'm a white male and i want to do that have that understanding of the situation and you just make the changes and you don't bring other people who are part of that demographic that you're looking at to make the change they're not going to be invested so you bring those people to the table and say hey listen I need to know what your lived experience is. I need to learn more about you so that I can understand that experience so we can work together to make changes. Mm -hmm. That was so important, so important. And I get the, the research that you've done because, again, we have a quantitative that gathers the numbers, but the qualitative, the phenomenology, the lived experience, that. It's so important because it tells the story.
2: It tells the story and it tells, and I feel like by telling the story, if you're a woman reading the book, you will know where in the trajectory you are right now. Like, oh, you already had a meeting with your supervisor. They told you that you have to get a degree. Like this is the trajectory of other women. This is what they went through. And there was a person that I interviewed for my book that was very interesting. This is how qualitative research is so fascinating Mm
0: -hmm. there
2: was this leader who was very proud of himself because he had a lot of women under him like oh my department is like have more women than men so he thought he was like here I am a champion of gender equity Mm -hmm. it wasn't until three years later after he had all these women assigned to him to his position that he actually realized that all the women that worked for him even though he had more women than men they were all in administrative roles. None of the women had leadership roles. So there he was going, telling people, Oh, I am so inclusive, gender equity. He really believed that. But it wasn't until he went to a conference about women in leadership, he was a male. And he went to this conference and then they talked about how a lot of companies have more women than men, but they're not in powerful positions. So then he looked at his organizational chart and he was like, Oh my God, here I am. And none of these women have a director title or have like a budget or decision making like all of the budgets have been assigned to males all of the authority have been assigned to males like male are the ones that are doing performance appraisal they have no authority in the in this. they're all usually supporting a male in their leadership roles yeah. so we need that awareness and that's why i wrote the book
1: well i love that So tell us more about being the founder of the Capajan Institute. Give us a glimpse of what this is and how folks can access your services.
2: So the Capajan Institute is something that I came up with after seeing the need for inclusive leadership and seeing that, you know, you have people out there teaching inclusive leadership that haven't gone through the experience of being a minority in a work and I feel like you need more of, again, of that qualitative talk, that stories behind it. Like I can go inside of a classroom and teach you about leadership, like the leadership approaches and the science of leadership and emotional intelligence and all of these things that have to do with the leadership. But I feel like we still need to hear the story of how people become leaders, how leadership impact impacts people, impacts minority, the social responsibility of leadership. So the Capian Institute is a company that provides keynote speaking opportunities that include sometimes the book signing of the books. So sometimes I go to companies and I uh, sell the books and also do a keynote speaking or we do a training. And it can be a professional development training where we talk about leadership, negotiation, team building, so think about you getting a whole ma- a degree on leadership in one day or two days. And also we do empowerment events for women and minorities where we do coaching and we do wellness. I do believe in the holistic approach of being your best self. And if you can be your best self, then you can be the best leader also. So it's a holistic, inclusive approach to leadership.
1: Well, I absolutely love everything from TEDx to the book to your institute. You've done so much. You are absolutely unstoppable. So we've talked about so much today. So my last question is, and as we come to the close of the interview, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of encouragement, what
2: would they be? Do not negotiate who you are to make other people comfortable. Mm. You have to stay true to yourself and I think after everything I went through with workplace harassment, discrimination, and everything that I've gone on in my life, at the end of the day, nothing has made me happier than saying, this is who I am. This is what I have to offer. And if some people feel uncomfortable about who you are, they can find somebody else. You have to be. Content with who you are, as long as you're not harming anybody else, and you're living your truth, and you're being, you're doing service. Don't negotiate your identity, your personality, because it will make other people comfortable.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Capellan, for joining me on the Core Women Podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been it's been amazing to speak with you.
1: Thank you. You can follow Dr. Marisol Capellan on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and at Marisol, dot com. So that's Marisol com, and you can get her book on Amazon.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Core Women Podcast with Dr. Summer Watson. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect more with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Core Women and on Twitter at CoreWomen1. For more about Core Women and Dr. Watson, visit CoreWomen.com. Want more support and resources for amazing women like you? Great! Join Dr. Watson and Jen Fontanilla at the Life, Love & Money Collective, a Core Women production that aids in understanding the key traits that might be getting in the way of living a life that you are absolutely passionate about. Connect with Summer and Jen and find out more at theLifeLoveAndMoney.com.